Hey everyone, it's Rich Warner from WealthMaxBuilder.com and the WealthMaxBuilder YouTube channel. Glad you could be with me today. Today I'd like to do a review of some of the financial advice that's been produced by Robert Kiyosaki. Now Robert Kiyosaki is the famous author of the best-selling book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And this is a classic book that I think everyone should read who has an interest in personal finance. Now, Robert Kiyosaki also has a YouTube channel where he shares with us some of his insights into real estate investing and into becoming your own boss. Essentially, he's taking some of the guidelines that appear in Rich Dad, Poor Dad. For example, he's a big time entrepreneur. Kiyosaki hates to work for other people and he doesn't think it's the best way to create wealth. He finds that if you work for somebody else for the rest of your life, you're never going to make more than what you need to basically pay your bills. If you want to create real significant wealth, Kiyosaki says, you should try to become your own boss. Become an entrepreneur. And what I've noticed over the years is that not everyone has what it takes to become an entrepreneur. Not everyone wants to go out and start their own business. It takes a special type of person to want to go out on their own, to take the risk, to raise capital, Sometimes it's their own capital. Sometimes it's borrowed money. Regardless of where the money comes from, it takes a lot of risk and responsibility to go out on your own and, and try to start your own business. Honestly, don't believe that most people have those traits uh, to succeed in business on their own. That's not to say this book can't help most people interested in learning about personal finance because there are a lot of other interesting things that are covered in this book for example, one of the things that I think is very valuable is to understand that there's a relationship between a net income statement and your net worth statement or your personal book value. You know, your net income statement is simply uh, the total amount of revenue that you take in or income that you generate on a monthly basis minus your total expenses. So if you're generating more income than you're using up in expenses, you have a net savings and that is known as a budget surplus. The opposite would be is if you're spending more than you're generating in income, in which case you would be generating budget deficits. And there's an interesting relationship between your net income, your surpluses or your deficits, and your assets minus liabilities, otherwise known as net worth. And they are interrelated. And that in itself is a very worthwhile discussion I find in this book. So uh, there are also some other uh, gems of information, uh, personal insights that Kiyosaki shares with you that he's learned from his rich dad, so-called, as well as um, some observations that he makes about his poor dad. So um, it's a worthwhile read, but as a personal finance teacher and investment manager, I feel it's my responsibility to share with my students and viewers my personal opinion and insights about some of Kiyosaki's uh, financial advice, some of which I find to be highly questionable. Now, if you check out Robert Kiyosaki's YouTube channel, you'll notice that you know he's a very likable guy, uh, very friendly. He has a genial, likable character, and um, he just comes across very well on the screen. So among the more questionable bits of financial advice that he shares, and this one happens to be more about careers, he says that you shouldn't follow your passions. You should just do what it takes to help you make money, which is surprising considering that in this book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, 
he advocates going into business for yourself. So my question is, how can you go into business for yourself if you don't do what you really enjoy and have a passion for? How can you be good at something and be competitive at something if you don't have a passion for your business? So that seems a little bit contradictory, for example. Kiyosaki also suggests that you know having a job, a nine to five a job where you work for somebody else is a, is a dead end. Um, but in fact, it's a great way to build up experience. In my opinion, I don't think it's a good idea for any young person to go out on their own unless they've worked for a few years and really understood what the competition is all about. You know, why not get a job first at a company that does what you're interested in doing? I'm talking about the non-medical profession here, non-legal profession. You know, I'm talking about pretty much all other occupations here. Um, why not go out and work first for somebody and learn the ropes from someone who's actually succeeding and making money in that field first? You know, you can learn some valuable information um, and lessons by being an employee. Work a few years for someone who's successful in that field first and then go out on your own and start your own business. You may even come to the conclusion that you don't even want to go out on your own after you've done this for a couple of years. And that's valuable information in itself. You know, and there's nothing worse than starting a business without having much experience and then learning four or five years down the road that, you know, this is not really something that you were cut out for. So that's a major point that I have a bit of a disagreement with, uh, with Robert Kiyosaki. Another piece of financial advice that Kiyosaki gives that I find a bit misleading is his emphasis on cash flow. For Kiyosaki, cash flow is king. It's not so much that you own real estate that's important in Kiyosaki's view. It's the fact that it can generate rental income for you. Anything that's generating an interest stream for you or dividend payments along the way, cash flow income, is a major plus for Kiyosaki. But this overlooks the point that Kiyosaki himself has over $600 million in debt for his real estate properties. I'm assuming that's where the bulk of his business is, and that's the impression that I get from watching some of his YouTube channel videos. So Kiyosaki is not exactly out of the red, so to speak, and I find that a bit surprising for someone who's supposed to be as successful as he is. You know, if he's been generating all this rental income all this while, then why aren't these debts paid off is one of my questions. Another important point is that if you're so focused on cash flow as being everything and not the fact that the real estate itself is an asset that appreciates in value over time, the fact that you can actually take an asset such as real estate and sell it, for example, when you're scaling down before your retirement, you know, you sell your biggest home before you retire and you scale down, you move to a smaller single family home or a condominium or an apartment of some sort and you're scaling down, well, you can live off of the assets from the sale of the bigger real estate property and translate that into cash flow. That's a point that Kiyosaki totally overlooks. And along these lines, one of Kiyosaki's most questionable pieces of financial wisdom is when he says that a home is not an asset, it's a liability. That was a real shocker when I heard it for the first time. I could not imagine that someone would actually say something like that because, and I believe most people would agree with me, is that a home is an asset that appreciates over time. You may have a mortgage on a home, and yes, it may not be generating rental income for you, 
But the fact that you can pay off the mortgage over a certain number of years means that that liability is not going to be there forever. And your equity in the home will actually increase over time as you pay down the mortgage. Eventually, once the mortgage is paid off, the home is 100% yours. And now you have an asset of incredible value because not only have you paid off the debt, but the home itself most likely has been appreciating in value. And studies show that there is a long-term appreciation of real estate assets, homes, and properties over time. You just have to give real estate enough time. I've read in a financial journal a study done by some academics that say that the optimal holding period for single-family home ownership is around 11 to 12 years. So you have to give real estate enough time before you bear the fruits of an appreciating asset. But generally, the average annual return from real estate without a mortgage, that is unleveraged real estate, is about 4, 4.1% per year. With a mortgage, you will magnify or lever those returns significantly. For example, if you put 25% down on the value of a home investment, you know, you're talking about four to one leverage in that case, you're going to magnify your average annual returns from 4.1% to something like 10, 11, even 12% per year. But along with leverage, there's always volatility and risk. And that's something I don't wanna go into too much detail today, but I just wanna let you know that I disagree with Kiyosaki when he says that a home is a liability. To me, that's a lot of bunk. I've personally observed my parents' experience with real estate over the years. Now, my parents are not financial gurus by any means, and they did not invest in stocks and mutual funds and such over the years. However, they did very well simply owning single-family homes over time. They would purchase a home, take good care of it, make improvements along the way, and over 8 to 12 years, sometimes 15 or 20 years, my parents would sell the home and then buy a bigger one. And then at the very end, my parents scaled down. They bought a smaller single-family home, and I am currently their fund manager. I am managing their retirement assets in a diversified conservative asset allocation. So my parents did it without rental income. They did it precisely because the property that they owned at the time was an asset, not a liability. Also, the first home that my parents purchased was a multiple dwelling. It was a three-floor apartment complex, and we lived on the middle floor, and we rented out the third floor and the first floor. So my parents had two sources of rental income that helped pay off the mortgage. So one might ask, well, why didn't they continue to buy rental income along the way? And that would have helped generate more income along the way, and they probably would become much wealthier than they would have by just owning single-family homes and then selling them. Well, the problem is that being a landlord can be a major pain in the butt. My parents swore after their first apartment building, multiple dwelling experience, after 10 years of doing that, they promised themselves never to do this sort of thing again. They got so fed up with dealing with all the headaches and hassles of being a landlord. Everything from abusing property in the homes, in the apartments, appliances being broken, paint jobs, that carpets having to be refurbished, replacing doors that were kicked in, 
abusing utility rights, for example, running the heating at high levels while having windows open in the middle of the winter. Things like this really annoyed my parents. And at one point, my parents were very concerned with one tenant who had lost his job and who was facing economic hardship and wasn't going to be able to meet the rental payments. But these experiences raise some very important questions. You know, do you have what it takes to be a landlord? Do you know how to deal with problem tenants? Do you know how to draw up contracts for leases? Do you know how to find valuable property that has rental income potential and that can appreciate over time? Not only are you up against all the many people who've taken those rental income crash courses in real estate and who are following the step-by-step -step plans outlined in these crash courses, you're also up against professional money managers. These are real estate investment property holders, private equity, institutional real estate investment trusts, hedge funds who hire professionals to manage properties for them, but also are on the lookout for good investment opportunities. The point I'm trying to make is that it's extremely competitive out there and you may not have what it takes on your own to become a good landlord in order to generate consistent rental income. Don't forget, there are a lot of expenses along the ways. You have to pay for legal expenses. You have to pay for maintenance. You have to hire accountants. You have to learn how to negotiate with lending companies in order to get financing to buy rental properties, etc., etc. So just as I think that not everybody can be an entrepreneur and make it on their own, as outlined in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, but also I find that it's very competitive to be a successful landlord these days. You really have to know what you're doing. And I don't think the average person out there has what it takes to compete in rental income real estate. Some other points that Kiyosaki makes that sort of rub me the wrong way include statements that he pays little if any taxes, and he seems to be proud of it. It's kind of reminiscent of a presidential candidate that we heard about in 2016 who bragged about not having to pay all that much taxes, and that if you pay a lot of taxes, you're stupid. Well, I happen to disagree with the import of that message, because not only is it uncivic, but it's un-American. Here's my thing about the libertarian argument. You know, minimize the size of government, pay minimal taxes. Here's the problem. It's precisely because we pay taxes that we have a police force and fire departments that help protect your private property. Indeed, one of the cornerstones of capitalism is private ownership. Well, who's there to secure the fact that you own a piece of property? If it weren't for the police system that can enforce your legal rights to owning that property. By not paying taxes, you're opening the door to the state of nature where there is no protection of private property. What would it be like, for example, if there were an 80-year-old widow living on farmland and then all of a sudden a group of thugs come down the road and threaten her and say, we're going to kill you unless you give us your farmland? Well, that's the state of nature for you. And if it weren't for the police force being there that she could call in and say, hey, there are guys who want to take my property away, she would have a losing battle. And so the protection of private property is highly dependent on the fact that we as Americans pay our share of taxes. It's almost like saying, I want to play the game, but I don't want to play by the rules at the same time. 
Another piece of questionable financial advice from Kiyosaki is when he says the U.S. dollar is fake money. Now think about that statement for a second. The U.S. dollar is not exactly the Argentinian peso or the Zimbabwean dollar. It is the central reserve currency of the world economy. Not even the euro, not even the Japanese yen or the Chinese yuan renminbi come close. The U.S. dollar is the reserve currency of the world. So what does Kiyosaki do with his savings, if you will? Well, if it's not real estate that he's investing in, it's in gold and silver, as if precious metals were the end-all, be-all of all time. Well, Kiyosaki's argument may have some merit. Since 1971, the U.S. dollar has been off the gold standard. So since 1971, the U.S. dollar has been freely floating against the price of gold and silver and other currencies, and it is essentially a fiat currency. Now, fiat is the Latin word for faith, essentially having trust in a currency. So U.S. dollar holders are essentially trusting in the fact that the dollar will hold its value over time. Unlike Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies that can go up to $20,000 per Bitcoin at the end of 2017 and then lose over 65% of its value within three months, as occurred in 2018, the U.S. dollar is a stable currency. It preserves value, and you can also earn interest and dividends on securities that are denominated in U.S. dollars. And these dollar-denominated securities can appreciate in value and generate dividends and interest that exceed the rate of inflation. So therefore, dollar-based investments, such as the kind that Warren Buffett has invested in since the 1950s, U.S. stocks, for example, these are paper assets, to use Kiyosaki's term, that are generating real total returns over and above the rate of inflation. You cannot say that about gold and silver. You know, precious metals do not generate dividends. They do not generate interest income. You're just dependent on the fluctuations of commodity prices when you're a gold investor. Now, I have a previous video that I made on the Wealthmax Builder channel that's all about the long-term historical performance of the four major asset classes. And the chart that I have here is taken from that video, and I just wanted to highlight it again. Now let's take a quick review of this chart because it's very, very important. The first line that we have here is the green line. It is the benchmark U.S. stock index going back to 1925. That's the green line. The yellow line below it is leveraged real estate. That's if you use four to one leverage or put 25% down on a single family home. That yellow line tracks the performance of leveraged real estate since 1925. Next, we have the lavender line, which is an optimally balanced conservative asset allocation between stock index funds, investment grade bond index funds, and some gold. The blue line below it shows the real returns of an investment-grade bond portfolio. And by the way, these are all real returns since 1925. So I've subtracted the rate of inflation from the total returns of these four major asset classes. So the investment-grade bond index here, the blue line, as you can see, does not generate nearly the returns over time that the stock market does. But it also happens to be much quieter. It's a lot less volatile than the stock market is. The brown line below it is unleveraged real estate. 
That's the performance of owning a single-family home in America since 1925. As you can see, unleveraged real estate does not beat bond investing at all. If it weren't for the leverage factor, the fact that you can take out a mortgage to buy real estate, you wouldn't get near the returns that you would from the stock market. Unleveraged real estate generates merely 4% a year. That's only 1% real return over inflation. Because if you recall, the average rate of inflation since 1925 in America has been around 3% per year. At 3% inflation, we're losing about three pennies in purchasing power per year by owning US dollar assets. But finally, and this is the highlight of this slide, is the red line. This is the CRB index, the Commodity Research Bureau index. The CRB index is comprised of energy commodities like crude oil, natural gas, gasoline, etc., precious metals such as gold and silver, platinum. You have industrial metals like aluminum and zinc. And then you have the agriculturals, you have the cottons, you have the foodstuffs. So the Commodity Research Bureau is a broad index, but it's heavily weighted to the energies and to the precious metals. You may be asking yourself, why has the red line been underperforming the other three major asset classes so severely? And that's the key point I'm trying to make. Commodity investing is a terrible investment over the long haul. Yes, there is geopolitical risk. Yes, there is inflation. And for that, you need a little bit of gold in your portfolio. But to take all your liquid assets and your savings and put it into gold and silver is a huge blunder. I mean, the fact that stocks make money over time is because businesses are there to generate profits. They have to exceed their borrowing costs in order to stay in business. So businesses themselves are leveraged. They have borrowed capital to keep them in the game. And then they use that capital to generate profits and the return on their investment more than exceeds the rate of inflation and their borrowing costs. That's the whole reason why stocks are such a good investment over long periods of time. Investment grade bonds may not be as sexy and flashy as stocks, but you know what? They do the job for balancing out your portfolio returns and they also provide some yin-yang effect during bear market periods. I talk about this interaction between stock indices and investment grade bond indices in other videos on the Wealthmax Builder channel. But getting back to Kiyosaki, for example, I think it's a huge mistake to mislead viewers into thinking that investing in securities in a diversified investment portfolio is not real investing. All you have to do is look at Warren Buffett as your example. He's worth over $80 billion last I checked, and he did it by investing in solid companies as a diversified stock investor. And with all due respects, Mr. Kiyosaki, Warren Buffett doesn't have over $600 million in debt as a real estate investor. If you're an investor type who likes to read articles and reports on investing as I do, you probably come across a recent report that states that 99% of Warren Buffett's wealth materialized after his 50th birthday. Overall net worth went from like $300, $400 million and just kept exploding up to the billions. And today, Warren Buffett's worth over $80 billion. Now, the reason I bring up this example and what this chart really shows is the power of compound growth. 
Compound growth is when you generate returns on your investments that have already generated returns for you. That means you're experiencing growth on growth. You don't get that with simple investing or simple interest where you generate interest per year and then you live off the interest. The fact that you're plowing back the returns on your investments in the form of dividends, interest, and as well as capital gains, you're plowing it back into your investment portfolio and then generating returns on those added returns as well as the original investment principle, which means that over time, the future value of your portfolio is going to explode the longer you invest. Think of it as a snowball running down the mountain. At the top of the mountain, you start rolling the snowball down the hill, and it's quite small. But over time, as it continues to roll down the mountain, it picks up more snow, and more snow, and more snow, and it starts to grow in size. And because of its ever-increasing size, it starts to pick up more and more snow along the way, resulting in an incredible explosion towards the end of the mountain. So that by the end of the mountain, the rate of increase is much higher than at the beginning when you started rolling that snowball down the hill. That is the concept of compound growth in effect. And it's this key point that is completely overlooked and ignored by Robert Kiyosaki when he says that he hates investing in paper assets. Well, there is no better way to achieve the compound growth that Warren Buffett has than by investing in a portfolio of investment securities. So the point is that you have to be very, very careful who you trust when it comes to financial advice. If you listen to everything that Robert Kiyosaki did, you may feel as though you're forced into going into a particular line of business, i.e. becoming a landlord to generate rental income, when you're probably not cut out for it. That's number one. And as I've mentioned, there are a host of other points that really rub me the wrong way as a personal finance teacher and investment fund manager myself. You know, it sounds to me as though there are a lot of guys out there that are pushing these real estate deals on average investors in order to sort of pump interest in real estate. I mean, it sounds like it's some sort of like infomercial type of plug for investing in real estate rental properties. Like, I'm a rental income property investor. Why don't you become one too? That way, the price of all our rental properties will go up sky high. Well, we all know what happened in 2008 when there was a real estate bubble. There were plenty of real estate investors who lost their shirt because they were magnified and leveraged to the hilt. So once again, investing in rental income properties may not be the optimal strategy for most people. Now I'd like to conclude this video with a sample spreadsheet that I created to crunch some numbers when it comes to a hypothetical rental real estate income property. And this is a hypothetical example. I am not a rental income investor. I've tried to factor in as many of the key points that we need to as a landlord or a rental income investor. So let's assume that we have $75,000 of our own capital to work with. We're going to use that to make a down payment on a rental income property that costs $350,000. So we have to borrow $275,000. That's a leverage multiple of almost 4.7. In other words, we're multiplying our buying power of $75,000 by 4.7 about. The interest on the mortgage 
the financing for our rental property is assumed to be 6.5%. This interest rate may be higher or lower depending on your credit score, your employment history, your experience investing in real estate, as well as the property itself. What kind of property is it? In the eyes of a lender, it's very important that the property has rental income potential and, and that it's likely to be rented out. So let's assume that the rental income from this property is going to generate about $3,500 a month. We're going to factor in a depreciation of $200. That's essentially a deduction which the government gives us because we are renting out these properties to other individuals or businesses. And next we have our expenses in red. We have to pay about $1,700 a month in mortgage payments, property taxes of about $833, legal fees about $83 a month. You can pay this quarterly or at the end of the year or however the arrangement is with your legal advisor. Same thing with your CPA for accounting, about the same cost per month. Then we have this mysterious uh, expense factor called maintenance. Now this is a function of how good your tenants are. You know, are they taking care of the premises or are they mangling it and destroying it? Do I have to replace furniture? Do I have to replace carpeting, the walls, the electric system, the plumbing system? All of this has to be maintained over time. Repainting the walls, the doors, etc., have to be maintained over time as well. And we also have to pay home insurance. So assuming that we can get a rental income of $3,500 a month, in this example, our net income or cash flow from this investment is $253 a month. That equates to a cash flow return on investment of about 4% a year. Now, last I checked, a high yield bond fund can give you higher returns than 4% a year. We're talking 4.5%, 5% in some cases. Even an investment grade long-term corporate bond fund is going to give you about 3.5% today or closer to 4% depending on the credit class of the investment portfolio. But 4% from rental income in real estate is nothing exceptional. It's nothing to write home about, but it's still a decent positive number. But as you can see, where we really make money is in the appreciation of the property value itself. Not as much from the rental income, but as my parents experienced over years, simply from the appreciation in the real estate. But if we assume 3.5% appreciation in the property over a set number of years, call it 30 years, then your total return per annum is going to be 20% a year. And that's principally due to the leverage factor, to the fact that you've magnified your buying power of 75,000 to 350,000 by borrowing 275,000 or 4.7 times your principal. Well, let's say our average annual returns from real estate are now closer to 0%. When we type in 0%, you'll notice that we're only getting 4.1% returns from a rental income property. What saved us during the bad periods is the rental income okay, of 4% returns. You're getting no return from your appreciation of the property. It's all coming from the rental income. Likewise, if we assume that you bought near the bottom of a real estate bubble, let's say you, you bought it near the bottom and then you're experiencing closer to 7% returns per annum, well then your total return on your investment is due principally to the appreciation of real estate and now your returns are close to 37% per year. Now that's something to write home about but it's very hard to, number one, 
call the bottoms of a real estate cycle. And as I suggested earlier in the video, it's very hard to compete against the professionals who have dedicated teams of property managers, legal experts, and access to capital, and they can snap up valuable property near the market lows better than we can. So I decided to include this financial analysis of this rental income property situation because it, it really does pay to crunch the numbers a little bit and to get a feel for what it is that we're really getting into. And I will include a link below this video to access this spreadsheet if you'd like a copy of it. Just click on the link below the description of this video and you can, it'll take you to a Google Drive where you can download the spreadsheet and you can plug in your own numbers if you like. Or you can design your own spreadsheet similar to this one. Well, that's all I have to say about my experience reading and coming across some of Robert Kiyosaki's videos on his YouTube channel. I think there's some good information here and there that Robert Kiyosaki shares with you. But as with everything on the internet today, I think you really have to pick and choose the right bits of information and decide for yourself whether, in fact, it makes sense for you. Well, I hope you enjoy this video. If you did, please like and subscribe to the WealthMax Builder YouTube channel. And while you're at it, why don't you check out some of the other videos that I did for the WealthMax Builder YouTube channel, as well as some of my other information that's available on WealthMaxBuilder.com. This is Rich Warner once again, wishing you a great day and happy investing.